Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Emanuela Marinelli. She is a Shroud researcher with some incredible qualifications. With that, let me introduce, uh, let me introduce Manuela. She has a, really a resume that's almost too long for me to list all of the highlights, but here are a few. She's a former teacher of natural science living in Rome, Italy. She has degrees in natural and ge geological sciences and qualifications to teach mathematics, natural sciences, chemistry, and geography. Since 1977, she has been a respected Shroud author and international lecturer. She was one of the members of the Centro Romano di Sindonologia and received the Diploma of Catechist specializing in catechesis, catechesis of the Passion. In 1987, she taught the first course on Sindonology held in Rome by the Santuario della Madonna del Divino Amore, as well as many others. She has given Shroud lectures in 25 countries around the world. She has written numerous articles in newspapers and magazines and has taken part in various conferences, broadcasts, and telecasts. She's written 21 books on the Holy Shroud. Some of her books are translated into Belarusian, Czech, English, French, Polish, Portuguese, Spanish, and Ukrainian. She has participated in numerous congresses on the Shroud held around the world. And she was one of the founders of Collegiamento Pro Sindone, which is www.shroud.it. She also participated in the Jalsa Salana UK Congress of 2018 and 2019, organized by Ahmadiyya Muslims. She has received the Gold Medal of Merit of Catholic Culture and the Honor of Knight of the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic. Emanuela, it's so impressive of a background. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Guy, for the invitation for this interview. Absolutely, Manuel. I'm uh, very privileged to have you on today. So, uh, well, let's get started. Uh, so what is your background and your backstory on getting interested in the Shroud of Turin? It all started in 1975, so we have to go far back in time. At that time, I was 24 years old and had recently graduated with a degree in natural sciences. I was now studying for my second degree in geology, and I was always intrigued by scientific events that could also affect faith, but I had still yet never before seen the shroud. In that year, it was the Holy Year, there was the Jubilee, and I was walking on the Via della Conciliazione, the road that leads to St. Peter's Cathedral. In fact, I live in Rome, and I saw those, let's say, objects that are given to pilgrims as souvenirs that are not particularly beautiful, but I was struck by a beautiful face of Christ. So I entered the shop where it was displayed in the window, and I asked the nun of this religious shop, who was the artist who created this image? The nun told me, 
It's not made by an artist. This is the holy shroud. I didn't understand the word shroud. It was only later that I learned that the word shroud comes from sindon, the Greek word for shroud. But I didn't know that at the time. The nun then told me that the real funeral shroud that had wrapped the body of Christ existed in Turin. I remained quite skeptical. It seemed impossible to still have this ancient and precious artifact, so I never thought about it again. Two years later, in 1977, Max Frey Sulzer, who is the director of the scientific laboratory of the Zurich police, announced that he had discovered 58 different types of pollen on the shroud. 38 of these pollens do not grow in Europe, but grow only in the Middle East. In particular, one of them, the Zygophyllum dumosum, grows just in the areas of Jordan, Israel, and Sinai. Therefore, these pollens that arrived on the shroud define the origin of the sheet, precisely from the area where Jesus lived and died. Naturally, as a person in the scientific field, this attracted my curiosity a lot, and therefore I wanted to know more. And so I enrolled in a four-year course at the Roman Center of Syndenology, and after this course, I continued studying privately the object. However, everything changed in 1989, when immediately after the unfortunate carbon-14 dating of the shroud, I was asked by a journalist of the Messaggero, the daily newspaper of Rome, by the Vatican expert, Dr. Orazio Petrosidio, to collaborate with him on a book commissioned by the famous writer Vittorio Missori. This book was published by Rizzoli, an important Italian publishing house, and was very successful. Since then, it has been translated into five languages. It was the first first book published after the carbon-14 dating, the first book that broke the embarrassed silence that many had, especially those who, not knowing much about the method, believed in it, against the shroud's authenticity. I was lucky enough to have studied the problem of radioactivity for my degree thesis, so I was the right person to write what we could to explain what had happened due to that unexpected dating result that was different than what was expected. The carbon-14 dating result stated that the shroud dated somewhere between 1260 and 1390 AD. This kicked off a whole series of studies and activities which have been listed and which can still continue today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, that's fantastic. Now you've won a couple of uh, prizes. So tell us about your recent prize, the gold medal of merit of Catholic culture that you won. Yes, there is this prestigious recognition in Italy, which is the Medal of Merit for Catholic Culture, and this recognition is awarded every year by the Catholic Culture School of Bassano del Grappa, and I never thought of winning this prize because illustrious people have received it, including Benedict XXVI, the Pope who just passed away. It was an unthinkable award for me. But in 2015, there was the exposition of the Shroud. The commission decided to assign me this prize for the differences I made in the Catholic world, not only for the knowledge of the Shroud, but also how the Shroud helped people to learn more about Jesus. Starting with the Shroud, curiosity pushes us to learn more about Jesus, not only as a historical figure, but also his religious side. So I was truly honored to have this religious award, this award of the Catholic world. 
Yeah, thank you. And uh, not only prizes, but also you have an honor. Uh, you won another honor, which was the honor of Knight of the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic. This is another very prestigious recognition, and this is a secular recognition that for many years has only been given to men, and mostly men of culture, men that are so important that they get called knight. The title is still not called lady. The original name has remained, so now I am a knight of merit of the Italian Republic. Why was it given to me? In this case, it's not for the merits of spreading the Catholic faith, but because I have always renounced any payment for the conferences I give. For the lessons I give, I renounce payment and I have donated what has been given to me to a school in Africa, because the only school in the world dedicated to the holy face of the Shroud exists in Tanzania. The founder, who is a Tanzanian priest, needed help because in this school, I went to meet him since I've known about him for many years. Everything was missing. It was necessary to install solar panels, a water tank, a house for the teachers, basically everything. And so this help of mine that I have given to this school has been recognized as a civilian humanitarian award. It is not so much a religious award, but it's more the merit of helping an area of Africa, a poor area that needs our help. The school's mission is to help these kids in Tanzania to improve their lives so that they will remain in their country. This is a phenomenon that we know well. You in the United States have all those people who are emigrating from Mexico. Similarly, here in Italy, there are many of these immigrants, many who die along the way. So this is a humanitarian aid so that they can make a living there, that they can be happy and also educated there. It is a cultural help, as well as an economic one, and this was recognized, and I was really very happy about all, because through this, I was once again able to make the Shroud known, even in a secular environment. Yeah, very interesting, uh, uh, very impressive. So uh, now you've also not only won honors and, uh, and prizes, but you've written quite a bit uh, about the Shroud. So tell us about some of your latest research. I can say that the recent research, undoubtedly the most important, was the one I published in the prestigious Oxford journal Archaeometry, together with three other scholars, who are Tristan Casabianca, a French researcher, Benedetto Torisi, a statistics professor at the University of Catania, and his collaborator, Dr. Giuseppe Pernagallo. What did we do together? The main initial credit goes to the researcher Casabianca. This young researcher took legal action against the British Museum. In 2017, almost 30 years after the carbon-14 dating, he managed to obtain raw data, i.e. the data that was never made public to other scientists. It is called raw data in English, so the data that came out precisely from each of the individual measurements that were made. Those were secrets. They had been requested many, many times, but never granted. Tristan Casabianca, with a legal action, forced them to produce this data. Once received, we then provided this data together to the two statistician professors from the University of Catania on the team. They discovered something very interesting. From the statistical point of view, those samples were not good. They were not usable. You know that these three small samples were taken and given to the three laboratories that dated the shroud in 1988. 
They were cut from an area that had been ruled out by other scientists. It was regarded as a polluted area, a manipulated area. And we also know from the studies of Ray Rogers and by Joe Marino and Sue Benford, it had even been repaired. The area where the samples were taken wasn't valid, but the carbon-14 testing labs used these areas. They deemed their results as definitive with an article that was published in Nature on February 16th in 1989. Now, with this new article published on archaeometry in 2019, all those results are completely nullified because in those few centimeters, it's about three centimeters, the carbon-14 dating resulted in an age gap of about 150 years. From a statistical point of view, this makes the sample invalid and therefore loses any validity in dating the shroud to the Middle Ages. When the carbon-14 dating results were released, many people were very upset. To be honest with you, I never believed in them. Not for religious reasons, but for scientific reasons. Today, I had the great satisfaction of participating in this new research, which definitively eliminated the 1988 carbon-14 dating from the life of the shroud. It is an important research because it was published right where one of the laboratories is located that originally dated the shroud in 1988. If the University of Oxford and the archaeometry referees have accepted this work, it means that this is new work, is considered valid, and will not be denied again. Almost four years have now passed, and this work remains a milestone in the history of the shroud. It is definitively eliminated 1988 carbon dating. I must say that this has been a great satisfaction, even greater than the gold medal or the Knight of the Republic, because it is not only a title honorific, it is a scientific achievement. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, I always enjoy reading uh, your works and especially on academia.edu and, and other areas. Uh, so uh, it's so great to see what you're working on. Um, now, one of the big questions that always comes up, and that is, do you think that the man of the shroud could be Jesus? Yes, I really think so, because I have been studying the shroud for many years now. I have read hundreds and hundreds of books and articles, and I have done a lot of research before getting to the point of thinking that it is about Jesus. It is not a matter of faith. We must distinguish the historical Jesus from the fact that Jesus is resurrected and that he is the Son of God. This is naturally believed by those who are Christians. However, the historical existence of the man Jesus of Nazareth must also be accepted by those who are not Christians because he is a historical figure. How can I say that the shroud is really his shroud? We have four types of elements on the shroud. We have the fabric itself, we have the micro traces present in the fabric, then we have the blood and we have the image. First, regarding the fabric. This fabric is a fabric that has traces of the DNA of those who have touched the shroud, i.e. the DNA of contamination much more than non-European people than European people. The DNA of the Europeans who have touched the shroud are less than 7%. Those who touched the shroud a lot were especially people from the Middle East, but also people from India. Now this fact about India is extremely interesting. Why? Because at the temple in Jerusalem, and this is even written in the Mishnah, there were fabrics from India that are used by the high priest. Knowing that the shroud contains DNA from India suggests that Joseph of Arimathea may have purchased the sheet 
at the temple, supplying himself with those precious fabrics which the high priest had at his disposal. We must not forget that Joseph of Arimathea was an authoritative member of the Sanhedrin. Therefore, the fabric shows that it came from an area as well as the pollen, as I told you, confirm its origin. And then, let's not forget that there is aragonite on the shroud, which is similar to the dust found in caves in Jerusalem. This dust contains trace impurities matching those from Jerusalem. Second, let's talk about the blood. There is blood of a person who has been wrapped in the sheet. It is not blood applied, for example, with a brush by an artist who would have dipped the brush in the blood. It is blood that has coagulated on the skin of the injured man and has re-dissolved by contact with the sheet. The sheet had been moistened and treated with aloes and myrrh, a perfumed oil, and then the crusts gradually dissolved again. And we know from the degree of redissolution, i.e., how long it takes for the crusts to soften and stain the sheet. We know from this melting time of a crust that the body had been in the sheet for about 36 hours, possibly up to 40 hours. And there are no signs of dragging, and there are no signs of displacement. Then the image itself is absolutely extraordinary, unique. And here we enter the subject of the mystery of the image. However, it is also interesting to note that normally the crucified were thrown into a mass grave. Thirdly, in the case the crucified man did not only not end up in the mass grave, but was even buried with the honors of a king, with aloe and myrrh which were found in the sheet. He was buried with a fine sheet. He remained a few hours. This man had been scourged more profusely than the sentence of crucifixion requires. He had two sentences, one of scourging with the promise of freedom. The other was crucifixion and lastly crowning with thorns. Who else was crowned with thorns? And only Jesus was pierced by a spear in the side, whereas normally the legs of the condemned were broken to hasten death. He was already dead, yet from this wound and imparted on the shroud was a stream of thick clotted blood and serum. John, an eyewitness to Jesus' death, writes in his gospel that he saw blood and water spurting from the wound. We know that Jesus dies saying a cry. He does not die of asphyxiation. He does not die like the other thieves whose legs were broken. He had already died of a broken heart. He had a heart attack due to the suffering in Gethsemane, from which this suffering begins and leads to death by broken heart on the cross. He dies with a cry. When there is this breakage of the heart, the blood floods the pericardium, the membrane that surrounds the heart, and for a while longer he remains hanging on the cross, dead. It is only after death that Joseph of Arimathea could go and ask Pilate for permission to bury him. He may then have gone and bought the sheet. During this time, the heavy part of the blood descends to the bottom of the pericardial sac. It envelops the heart and remains above the serum. The spear blow brings out blood and serum, therefore blood and water. There was a mathematician, Professor Bruno Barberis of the University of Turin, a famous scholar of the shroud, who precisely on the basis of all these coincidences that we have between the man of the shroud, let's call him that, and Jesus yielding a very high probability that it is Jesus. The probability is so high that I believe we have no other option but to say it is only about Jesus. 
Yeah, I, um, I, I kind of agree with you, uh, especially on the, there's such a small probability that the shroud is a, is a fake. The probability and the science is almost totally overwhelming that it is truly the, uh, the man in the shroud is truly Jesus. Uh, but then, of course, you have, you know, the problem of the, the missing history. And one of the time periods is, uh, is potentially when, when it, the shroud may have been in, in Odessa. And uh, there's the, the, uh, the Mandelian, the, the, uh, the concept of the Mandelian. So tell us about the Mandelian and its resemblance to the shroud. Is it the shroud of Turin? I think that the Mandelian was the folded shroud, as Ian Wilson hypothesized. I must say that one of the proofs of the shroud's authenticity, in my opinion, is the persistence with which the deniers work to say that it is false. If it were that easy to prove it false, they wouldn't write books, they wouldn't publish articles. A big book by Professor Andrea Nicolati of Turin has recently come out. It has also been published in English, a really big and heavy tome that is also heavy to read, in order to demonstrate at all costs that the shroud is not the shroud of Jesus. And one of the arguments on which there is fury is precisely the question of the Mandelian. Exactly for this reason, I became interested in the Mandelian, and I must say that I am the only person who has made critical reviews of these books written by Professor Nicolotti. I can give a link to these reviews later. Some are quite amusing, because I also use the weapon of irony to dismantle certain pretensions. So, the Mandelian is a cloth with Jesus' imprint on it. Everyone agrees. No one denies that it is a cloth. But how big was this cloth? The cloth had an imprint of Jesus. How did it get on there? There is the tradition of a painted image. There is the tradition of a miraculous image. However, in the meantime, this cloth was not small. We know this because, for example, Gregory the Referendary writes when the cloth arrived in Constantinople in 944 AD and speaks of the presence of the wound on the side. Then the research that Professor Mark Guskin has done is very important. He even went to Mount Athos to search for ancient texts. He found a text that says that there was an imprint on the Mandelian of the whole body of Jesus. But what is interesting is that the Mandelian was the name used. In the Meantime, who took the cloth away from Jerusalem and where was it taken? Well, there is an ancient tradition written by other scholars which say that an apostle who was the cousin of Jesus, Judas Thaddeus, brought this cloth to the king of Edessa. The king of Edessa was sick and through this cloth was healed. Now, it is interesting that this king of Edessa, according to ancient texts, had covered the Mandelian to protect it with a grate, a so-called golden trellis. This grate that covered the Mandelian is depicted in some frescoes that reproduce the Mandelian. For example, there is an interesting one in Gradic in Serbia, where you see the face of Jesus, but only the face, because it is the Mandelian still folded with the grate above it. Now, when Jesus is depicted on the shroud, i.e. the dead Christ, in a depiction of the whole body of Jesus, which is laying over the whole shroud in some frescoes, we can see the same grating design that there is on the Mandelian. 
It is as if it was a decoration. It even passed on the representation of the entire shroud. For example, there is a very interesting representation in Gornodoresi in Macedonia where it can be seen. I wrote about this in another important article that I did with other scholars precisely on the question of the Mandelian in Constantinople. There are various important reasons, both of historical texts and of images, where there are folds present on the shroud, confirming Wilson's hypothesis that the shroud was actually hidden in Edessa in the first centuries AD, folded so that only the face could be seen, and it was almost always closed and protected. Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that's uh, part of the Mandelian story is how did the shroud uh, tr uh, get transferred from Edessa, which is in the eastern part of modern day Turkey, uh, which is now called San Liorfa, how it was uh, moved or transported or purchased uh, from Edessa over to Constantinople. Now, in the late 600s uh, in the late 7th century, uh, the Muslims invaded that area and certainly invaded uh, Edessa. So uh, tell us uh, the story of how potentially the shroud may have been purchased from the Muslims in Edessa. Yes, then it must be said that Muslims respected this sacred cloth. They allowed Christians to venerate this cloth, and this is very interesting. So there was a peaceful agreement, and there were even three Christian communities, and two others had made copies. That's how important the Mandelian was. Each of these Christian communities was fond of their Mandelians, but only one of the three was the original. The other two were painted copies. The original was obviously the most coveted one, so we have to remember that in Constantinople there was an iconoclastic period. That is, a period in which icons were destroyed, sacred images were destroyed. Thank God this period ended. The emperor wanted to possess what is the most important, the most significant image of the face of Christ. We have to think that even during the Second Council of Nicaea, there was a discussion about the image preserved in Edessa to legitimize the use of reproducing the face of Christ, because we know that the opponents, those who were averse to the image, said that God cannot be portrayed. There was a ban in the Bible in portraying God for making himself idols. However, who Whoever defended and still defends this possibility had a very strong argument, which was that of the incarnation of God in Jesus. Because if God did not want to show his face, he didn't have to take a human form and let us see his face. Not only that, but Jesus even leaves the imprint of his face and body on the shroud. So it means that we have every right to depict sacred images. So, this precious cloth is much coveted now, and what's very interesting is that there is an Islamic source, and it's good having a Muslim text because it's not biased, it's not that a Christian invented it. We have a text called The Complete History. It was written in the 13th century by Ali ibn al-Athir. What does this Muslim author tell us? He tells us some extremely interesting things. First of all, that the shroud, i.e. the Mandelian, naturally speaks of this face on the cloth, right? And today, we know precisely that it was the folded shroud. However, he always speaks of this face on the cloth, 
but it is interesting that he says that before arriving in Edessa, it had been kept in Ephesus, Damascus, and Antioch. Now remember, in Ephesus, we know that the Mother Mary lived with John the Apostle. John is the only apostle left under the cross. John is the one who then discovers the empty sheet together with Peter. He could have given it to the Mother Mary, because it was present in Ephesus, testified by a Muslim author, then went to Damascus, Antioch, and Edessa. So what happens in the 10th century? We are in the year 943. The cloth takes a year to get to Constantinople with all the events, and arrives in 944. Meanwhile, what is the emperor of Constantinople doing? He absolutely wants this cloth, so he sends his most important general, John Korkoas, with 80,000 soldiers to the walls of Edessa. He basically sends an emissary. The emir of Edessa is baffled. The emir has to face this great army, but he is told by the emissary, no, we have come in peace. When I talk about this episode, the school children start laughing. They say, thank goodness he had gone in peace with 80,000 soldiers. What if he had gone to war? How many soldiers did he bring? Well, the proposal that Korkoas makes is absolutely a peace proposal. He says, I'll give you 12,000 pieces of silver in addition to 200 important Muslim prisoners in exchange for this piece of cloth. Do you see the importance of this piece of cloth? It was certainly not just any painting. It was an extraordinary object, and it was known. The emir finds himself in a difficult spot, so he turns to the caliph and sends an emissary on horseback, a messenger on horseback all the way to Baghdad, which was dependent on Edessa, to ask the caliph, what should I do? Even the caliph is in trouble because he has to face such a strange and peculiar request. He gathers all his sages, all his advisors. A part of them tell him, No, we must not give in because we will look like cowards. People who at the first request, No, it has been there for so many centuries, it must stay there in Edessa. Another group, however, have an opposite idea. Says, Ah, no, we must consider those 200 prisoners who are suffering and who can be freed. The text does not say, let's consider the 12,000 pieces of silver, which of course would be useful for us. This is not said explicitly, but in short, the speech about this incident, it was somehow better to make the trade. Also, because what would the 80,000 soldiers do if the Muslims refused? We won't give it to you. The 80,000 soldiers would have destroyed the city and would have taken it anyway by force. So they made the trade, and it is carried with triumph and honor back to Constantinople. But a lot of time passes, because every city that the army passes through wants to pay homage to the Mandelian. So it doesn't arrive in Constantinople until August of the 944 AD. Then, there was a feast that the Orthodox still recognize. It is celebrated on August 16th. It is the feast of the Holy Mandelian. It is the feast of the arrival of this precious image in Constantinople. So you can see how fascinating this story is about the history of the Shroud. Yeah, thank you. You know, that is such a fascinating and uh, time and uh, epic in the history of the of the uh, of the shroud. Uh, but now in modern times today, there seems to be a huge growth in the interest in the shroud. So what do you see as the next big thing in the study of the Shroud of Turin? 
In my opinion, there are three areas that we need to be investigated further. One is certainly the origin of the image. Another one is the dating of the shroud with a scientific method. Because now that we have negated the carbon-14 dating, we don't have any scientific dating of the shroud, i.e., we can date it indirectly by seeing precisely the similarity with the Mandelian. However, there is no scientific proof of its age. It is therefore necessary to look for and implement alternative methods to date the shroud. Lastly, I think we need to investigate ancient history again, to look for other documents. I think the most interesting studies have been carried out on the origin of the image at Enea in Frascati, a research center where a few years ago, a research director, Dr. Giuseppe Baldaccini, together with his team, including Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro, have created some yellowing of a fabric very similar to the yellowing that allows us to see the image on the shroud, i.e., they have applied a particular laser generating an extremely superficial oxidation and dehydration. By superficial, we are talking about a fifth of a thousandth of a millimeter. This is similar to what is found on the shroud. We, they are very close, in short, to solving the problem of the image generation, i.e. a chemical solution. We know what the image is, we also know that what can form the image, but a huge problem remains, that this image was certainly not not made by a laser. It was made from a corpse. And then a laser would not be enough to make it. It would take more than 10,000 lasers. So here is the great and extremely fascinating mystery of the shroud. Therefore, we must commit ourselves accurately dating the shroud. Some years ago, with Professor Silvio Diana of the Institute of the Central Restoration of Rome, we had done some promising research on the possibility of evaluating the age of the shroud from the degree of depolymerization of the cellulose over time. Unfortunately, these studies were abruptly interrupted because Professor Diana had a stroke and was no longer able to resume this research. But there are other researchers who are doing them, you know. So these are some of the areas in which I think we still have to commit ourselves. Yeah, there are so many things that I'd like to see happen with the Shroud. I certainly uh, hope that uh, what you just mentioned comes to fruition and we can really take the understanding and the validity of the Shroud to the, to the next level. So uh, before we close, where can viewers and listeners find out more about you and your work? And certainly those who speak Italian are more favored because most of my interviews of my articles and my books are in Italian. However, on the internet at academia.edu, you can find several of my articles also in English because I have participated in 25 international congresses, so the works have been published there in English so they can be found on the internet. Then I have my website, which you mentioned at the beginning, and there are many of my videos on YouTube, so you can search on YouTube by putting Emanuela Marinelli Sindon. There is a lot in Italian, lots in English, and then there are my books. One of my books that I am really attached to, which is translated into English, is Luce dal Sepolcro that is, light from the sepulchre. I say that I am particularly attached to it because I wrote this book together with a scholar on the historicity of the Gospels, Professor Marco Fazol. We collaborated together, and it is the only book on this double theme, the shroud and the historicity of the Gospels. 
There are many books on the Shroud and many books on the historicity of the Gospels, but we have made a synthesis that can satisfy in a single book those who want to know more about these two topics that are still debated and controversial. Because unfortunately, there is someone that gets bothered about the fact that the Shroud is authentic and that the Gospels are authentic. What can we do? It was not our initiative to make that there is a shroud and some gospels that are authentic. I have to say that in my life, I hadn't planned to dedicate a good part of my time to the shroud. It happened like this. It obviously had to go on like this. I didn't hold back, especially after the carbon-14 dating, when everyone was scared. It was my duty to say what I knew. At that point, I had already been studying the shroud for 11 years. So here I would say my books, especially the book Light from the Sepulchre, can be a good basis for anyone who wants to delve into the subject. Also, because in Light from the Sepulchre, there are all the notes, the footnotes below, where you can see all our references. Why did we do them? They are not our fantasies. We have not written a novel, but it is an essay, that is, a book that documents everything we can get to know about these two fascinating subjects. Yeah, you're, uh, you are uh, uh, all over the internet. And what I found is anyone that searches on Emanuela Marinelli, you'll be found. Uh, you've got so many YouTube uh, videos, you've got things on academia.edu and, 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 and everywhere else, uh, shroud.it. And, uh, and there are so many places you can be found for uh, what Emanuela is doing. Thank you so much. Uh, it was an honor to have you today and to speak with you today and learn about what's uh, some of the areas of interest that you have and hopefully what the future for the study of the Shroud of Turin uh, has. Uh, again, thank you. And uh, otherwise, for the listeners, please stay tuned for many other videos. In this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Thank you very much and thank you, Emanuela. Thank you for the invitation and please continue your good job. <laughs> thank you, but even to you, thank you. Please continue your good work. <laughs> thank you. Yep.